Okay, so I'm going to respond to some questions. Some of these are comments, such as person says, finds it difficult to access body and heart intelligence through sitting and breathing mindfulness. They invoke an overlay of past misguided but well-intentioned effort through standing, walking, lying down and upright openness, I can listen to what my chitta is saying, softly indeed. Wisdom and heart expression arise spontaneously, unwinding of sadness also, release and deepening. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's, um, I think, mindfulness of breathing is unfortunately quite tricky for people. It's, Buddha presented it as a, as a great gift. <laughs> Um, but he did seem to think that it took a bit of preparatory work to get there. Um, the sutta that's dedicated to it talks about um, a big gathering at Savati, uh, main monastery, where everybody was gathering together, and the all the great teachers were there teaching people for up to three months solid. So a very long, intensive retreat. At the end of it, the Buddha said, "Ah, oh, you know, doing pretty good." I'm going to stay here, and as a special thing, I'm going to teach you Anapanasati. So, a lot of the preliminary stuff is about, you know, <laughs> uh, well, is it preliminary? I mean, it's just the foundations, foundation work, which is um, on many levels mm. internalizing ethics, internalizing loving kindness. It's not just something you do to others, but an atmosphere you live within, getting a sense of dispassion, getting your efforts, your energies right, so you're not pushing too hard, getting the heart awakened, so the heart is leading the practice rather than the ideas-driven mind, so you're not just going into various tight little boxes trying to get it going. Um, and so that's why I often recommend just, you know, get the upright body feeling safe and comfortable and, no, and just get the mind to not, the heart to not feel under pressure and it will, it will open by itself and the simplest stable feature we can feel is the upright body of course you can do that standing, sitting or even walking uh, getting a sense of relaxing around that which again feeling of safety, seclusion, ability to do that those encouragements, the heart will tend to open by itself because it doesn't want to be closed. Uh, and even then, you often have to meet various bits of agitated heart territory, you know, fearfulness or self-criticism and so forth. So actually meeting that and is where you find breathing becomes an ally rather than a practice. You have to do... <laughs> That's the way to look at it, as, a, as an ally, support. Because when you're feeling nervous or shaky, you can take an out-breath. Feeling fed up, hopeless, just, just one in-breath. All the time in the world to breathe out, all the time in the world to allow an in-breath to happen. Then you approach it as an ally, rather than something that you've got to be good at. It supports you rather than the other way around, you're trying to get it. Mm. And it is quite a wonderful ally. 
Uh, it may only come in, you know, ten minutes or so. It's there, just and then you, okay. And then it's back to walking or sitting. But you build up a sense of trust with that, and let it come to you. Don't hunt it. Don't chase it. Don't nail it down. Um, person's asking, is there a chant or a practice we can do before or whilst eating? I wouldn't recommend chanting while eating. It makes a real mess of the place. <laughs> a chant before you eat, a practice while you eat. <laughs> so chanting, uh, well, we'll chant here, we chant things that express our gratitude and our, our gladness to be receiving food. You can also risk you know, that sense of gratitude to the earth, gratitude and recognizing you're eating just for the sake of respect for that whatever you eat, you couldn't create it. You know, it's come from somewhere else, the planet basically. So can we be respectful, not overuse it, not take more than we need. So that's the recollection. Don't take more than you need. Because you know you're taking it from a limited source. Um, and then gratitude. Uh, so anything that does that, recollections, you can make up your own. Um, and recognizing you often have to work with that triggering effect of taste and hunger. I want you to you know, go in there and get it so you just food's not going to run away take your time take a little bit at a time slow it down keep a sense of pacing and attention focus on chewing it's a respect for taking of a sacrament rather than gobbling Sometimes the citta feels vast, spacious and all-inclusive, other times very intimate, relating directly to the felt sense of being and offering responses. You know, um, vast and spacious is intimate. Mm. And sometimes when you frame the word intimate, we imagine something quite small and internal. Actually, it's not exactly... <laughs> It's not exactly, in, it is kind of internal, it's internal to consciousness. It's internal to consciousness. So the, the external form of consciousness is these sights and sounds and objects running around. That's what we call the external form of it. That's what sits on the surface of it. And it's quite limited. You know, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch, even what you can think. But it also says in it, internal aspect of consciousness which is the receptive open sensing and that has no that has no limits uh, and in that one feels it's kind of intimate because it's not doesn't belong to the external domain you see it's not a sight or a sound or an object it's the inner heartful knowing and responsiveness so though you might say it's interior to consciousness, it's actually bigger or more boundless than the exteriors. Mm. Do you see what I mean? Mm. 
sight is limited to a certain location. I can't see India from here. Mm. Mm. If you could, you could say you can't see the moon, so there's always more than you can visually encompass. For receptivity, you can receive silence, sound, the appearance of sound, the appearance of sight, the disappearance of sight, the thought, the disappearance of thought. There's got no no edges to it, really. And it's also extremely intimate in that it's um, immediately, immediately responsive. There's no third person in there. There's no sight, heart and somebody else. There's just the, the resonance, resonances. And naturally that's quite tender. So we associate that with with intimacy. Someone's asking about paritta chanting. This is a paritta chanting is a particular form of chanting, particular sequence of chants, which are, I think, primarily their suttas or extracts from suttas. Uh, and paritta is associated with something like protection. So. It's the case that in you know, monastic environments, and when people, which includes, of course, you know, non-monastics, uh, paritta chanting is done to evoke a sense of blessing and protection because it contains many of the teachings of the Buddha. Mm. So it's the Pali, both the Pali language itself. These suttas are. You know, you can consider they've been recited millions of times through hundreds of thousands of throats over thousands of years. So there's a lot of deep resonance in that. And they're often talking about, you know, quite profound terms, enlightenment factors, mindfulness, and so on, nature of the Buddha. So they're quite elevated topics. Also, just the very nature of sound itself, when it's shared, is extremely resonant and stirring. Particularly the most stirring is the human voice. So when the human voice isn't just chatting, it's actually resonating. In sound, it's got a, a strong potency for uplift and inspiration, gladness and inclusivity. Because in order to chant, particularly if you chant together, you have to listen to everybody else. If you listen and feel relaxed in your body, then you get a sense of harmony. And the voices all merge into one, which is a very beautiful occasion. This is why it's uplifting. And so sometimes people will you know, listen to some pretty chanting and that just helps to create that atmosphere and that context internally you know and then from there just sound disappears and you relax into the atmosphere of that the resonance of that and it deepens into meditation practice it's got some energy in it that lifts up Um, another person suffers from tinnitus so it's another sound when meditating, the mind goes quiet, then the ear, and so tinnitus is an ear problem, probably auditory nerves, I think, 
So you get this kind of constant sound happening in your ears. So I'm constantly sitting in the middle of the ocean and hearing the wind. How can I incorporate this into my meditation? Well, that's a nice image, the ocean, sitting in the ocean. So perhaps you just imagine that um, and spread your awareness over it, uh, encompassing the wide ocean. Uh, like a gigantic bird, you know, gull or something, but even bigger, just the sky, the sky encompassing the ocean. And so it's a very wide perceptual uh, field and relax into to the that which is attentive to that. Make it make it your meditation. And the focus then is is wide. Now it's often the case that like an image you just come up with in the middle of the ocean, the chitta more presents that as a little clue. What does this remind you of? Oh, ocean. Okay, so it's the ocean. What's wrong with the ocean? Tinnitus in my my ear is a problem, but the ocean, you know, I get used to that. I'm just, how do I operate in the ocean? I learn to float and uh, open to the sky. And so you want to look out for these. These images are called felt senses, felt senses, they're metaphors. When you get one of those, you know, that's it. The chit is saying, hey, this, this, is, this is what to focus on. Chit is kind of telling you, giving you a nudge. Because the chitta is also imaginative. One of its aspects is the imaginal world, the image-forming world. And they would often give us suggestions of what the sign, that word again, the sign to cultivate, is the sign of vast space. So make your chitta like vast space. Someone's asking about long-term meditation retreats, three months to a year in this monastery. We do a three-month retreat every year, but um, and sometimes people come to be part of that, but they act as a support team, maybe ten people, so they certainly have time to meditate, but they're often also having a, you know, of course they do rotors, so they're not most mornings, some of them, six of them will be preparing food, four will just be meditating and so forth. So that's what we do. And in fact, we're not set up to accommodate a lot more people than, than that. Someone experiences reluctance to sit in daily formal practice, even though they know there's, there's awareness of the benefits <laughs> yes, I can do morning and evening chanting. I do do morning and evening chanting. That's a good place to start. Hmm. I think rather than it may be useful, rather than thinking you've got to sit in daily formal practice every day, maybe just create some time when you stop doing other things. You just start to gently unplug from other things and switch things off, unplug, and you know, get your body comfortable. So do maybe do a little bit of exercise, stretch, breathe in, breathe out, and then 
you know, just quietly enjoy that. So sometimes the mind does do this kind of, oh, I don't want to sit here for another hour, so another half an hour or so. <laughs> and so you have to kind of not say that, but say, well, we'll just stop doing that. And after that for now, that can wait till tomorrow. Relax a bit. You can walk up and down a little bit. Just, just take yourself into it a moment at a time. And as you say, chanting does help because it gives you a lead in. If you do it and listen to it, then the way that is that is tethering your chitta to a sonorous, steadying, um, dhamma form. So you connect to that, see where the sound goes, and allow yourself to be quiet after the sound is finished. And listen, it can take you into the listening. Linger a little bit, keep lingering. Lingering. Once you, you know, you've got the idea that meditation practice is good, but you probably also have an I, an idea, it being a bit too, perhaps too formal, and more not quite so formal. What is right effort when it comes to strong, sustained energy? that is released during meditation. Well, I mean, it's a tantalizing question. Sustained energy, is it good? Negative energy, destructive, joyful, intense? But by and large, your effort is to create a uh, a container, a space for the energy to be experienced within. Mm. It's not really about slowing it down or understanding it, but just create some opener form, your body form, the space in the room, open your eyes, the space in the room around you. Till your chitta can feel it's not compelled by that energy, it's not driven by it, it's not, it can sort of ride or step back from, but it's not completely driven by that. So you get a sense of detachment, dispassion, and um, whether it's body energy or emotional energy, not quite clear. Um, uh, general sign is open to stability Mm. soothing steadying that becomes possible and then understanding Okay. So it's a little bit another level. Stories or backgrounds on the stained glass windows that Ajahn Sajito helped design for the Sunyata Buddhist Centre. Um, well, 
I did some, but I think the ones I designed are actually in the in the lodges and the one you see on the behind Paul. I don't think I did those, designed those. Though the person who did design them might have looked at the other ones and done something complementary. Mm. Um, if we're at this sort of anecdotal <laughs> phase, Sunyata Retreat Centre goes back a while, I don't know, 15 years or so maybe. And uh, I go back even longer. <laughs> And uh, in my earlier years, I, I, I did a series of, of illuminated manuscripts on primary discourse of the Buddha, the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta, which, where he lays out the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So I did this in calligraphy, and particularly calligraphy, I was doing was an unseal script, which was a script used by the Celtic monks of old, who were probably about fifth to the ninth or tenth centuries. And uh, of course, a lot of them were Ireland, Ireland and Scotland. Iona was a big uh, centre for this Celtic Christianity. And lots of these people were, were monks. A lot of them lived in Ireland, off the or little tiny crags off the coast of Ireland, you know, on little islands living on seagulls' eggs and, you know. But they also did illuminated manuscripts, which are quite a treasure. Uh, and there was one, the most famous one is the Book of Kells. Kells was a town, or is a town in Ireland. And this is where this book wasn't created there. They think it was probably created in Iona, in Scotland. But it, it was taken to Kells to protect it from Viking raiders. So it remains a national treasure. And it's, it is truly marvellous. And a marvellous piece of work. So I've, I've looked at that from time to time. I think I got inspiration from it. So I was kind of having this in mind when I was doing this, this manuscript. Um, and I think the, that, that was around for a while. I did a series of paintings of it. And one of the founders of Sunyata... Uh, had seen this and was kind of delight, you know, pleased by it. So when I was visiting Sunyata, he said, "Would you like, you know, could you do something for these windows?" I think that's how it started. So I just did some designs. It's nice to feel one's kind of bringing it back, you know, some of this. You know, it's kind of turning it back towards, you know, Ireland and bringing something back of that uh, that culture into the place where it was strongest, probably. So that's, that's where you will have to say about that. I'm glad you appreciate them. Um, and, you know, creativity is an expression of the chitta, uh, creating images. And I created the images because images go deep. Words travel, but images go even deeper. They touch our imaginal centers, our heart centers, our dream place, where they, you know, even a lot of teachings are best remembered or best configured as images, stories, poems, paintings that really lodge in the mind. Mm. So that was the rationale behind 
the painting and also behind these illuminations because that's kind of it's a nice idea isn't it you know the light which is uncreated shining through something human created and the light you know of consciousness or the light of awareness streaming through the various colorations of the human mind and something beautiful being born out of that Okay, I think we've come to the end of the question period for now, this time. So thank you for your questions. Um, It's great, it really keeps the retreat fruitful and uh, with input. And um, gives me something to, to bear in mind as I'm trying to support you 